Good evening, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks coming to you on January 16th with Season 2, Episode 3 of the Prez Forecast. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about the 4th and 5th quadrennial presidential elections, and the reason I am covering two this evening is because the president that was elected in 1800, Thomas Jefferson, did get re-elected in 1804. Uh, as a side note to kind of condense this a little bit more uh, than what I'd originally planned, instead of doing each election as an individual episode, I've decided that for those presidents who actually were re-elected, uh, I would do just one episode for them. It just makes more sense in that manner. So again, uh, we're going to be covering the fourth and fifth quadrennial presidential elections, starting with, of course, the fourth quadrennial presidential election, which took place in 1800. Now, what's interesting is this is the last election uh, to take place where electors actually voted twice. Again, if you remember from the first three uh, presidential elections, uh, they didn't, when they voted, they just voted for the person. They didn't say, I'm voting for George Washington to be president, I'm voting for John Adams to be vice president. They just put names on a ballot. And whoever came out on top uh, and won the required number, uh, which was half, they would become president. Whoever came in second would become vice president. Now, the election of 1800, which is also referred to as the Revolution of 1800, this is actually the last election that this will happen. Uh, I'll discuss it a little bit more in depth uh, when we get to the fifth quadrennial presidential election, because in 1804, the 12th Amendment was ratified, which completely changed the electoral process. Now, in 1800, uh, this is the first election under the first party system where both political parties actually fully nominate candidates to run. And of course, John Adams, who won, uh, became president in the third quadrennial election in 1796, is running for re-election. And they did not put anyone else up against him. He was running on his own with Charles C. Pickney as his running mate. Now, if you remember from the 1796 election, John Adams won in a kind of contentious battle. And Thomas Jefferson ended up coming in second after votes were changed legally. And he became vice president. So here we have a case where the president of the United States is running for re-election against the vice president. Now, on the Democratic-Republican side, of course, we did have Vice President Thomas Jefferson uh, from Virginia running for president. We also had former U.S. Senator Aaron Burr from New York running for president, although he was actually running as Jefferson's running mate. And then we had on the Federalist side, President John Adams from Massachusetts and the former minister to France, Charles C. Pickney from South Carolina, also running as the Federalist. That's basically who would be running for president and vice president, Jefferson and Burr on the Democratic-Republican side, John Adams and Charles Pickney on the Federalist side. Now, to give a little bit of a spoiler, uh, spoiler alert, Thomas Jefferson would, of course, win this election to become the third president of the United States. Uh, and this would actually, with his election, 
uh, usher in a full generation of Democratic Republican leadership. Uh, if you know anything about your history, uh, specifically United States history, you know that the Democratic Republican Party, uh, when it finally loses its steam and we move into the second political uh, party system, the Democratic Republican Party splits and we have the Democratic Party, which is still in existence today. The Republican portion of that name uh, would completely disappear. We would not see the, the Republican Party actually come into being a, as a political party until 1860, a couple of years before that. So that is the introduction for tonight. That's what we're going to be doing. Talking about the 1800 United States presidential election uh, in the 1804 uh, United States presidential election. Checking my time. Good. Yep. So the 1800 United States presidential election was, again, the fourth quadrennial presidential election. It was held from October 31st to December 3rd, you know, 177 years before my birthday. And it is sometimes referred to as the Revolution of 1800. Vice President Thomas Jefferson, of course, defeated President John Adams. And this was the political realignment and the, really the solidification of the first party system. Um, that, again, as I just previously stated just a couple of minutes ago, gave us a generation of Democratic Republican leadership. This is the last election uh, before the 12th Amendment. And I will go ahead and tell you that part of this race, if you've seen... Wow, I just completely lost the name of Hamilton. (laughs) Apologies there. Uh, if you've seen Hamilton, uh, you may remember the, the song, The Election of 1800, um, which focuses on Alexander Hamilton's uh, effect on the outcome of the election. Uh, he actually uh, backed Jefferson uh, over Madison, or sorry, over Adams, which was a bit of a political uh, story in that time. Uh the musical does, of course, take creative liberties because when you're creating musicals or stories or movies, you need to add and subtract some things to make it a little bit more interesting uh, because it does suggest that Burr campaigned for president against Jefferson, or Aaron Burr, uh, rather than on the same ticket. Now, what we'll talk about here in a few uh, few segments is that there were allegations that Burr was running for president against Jefferson than on the same ticket. Um... But the way that Hamilton portrays it, it, it's as if they are running opposed. And they weren't running opposed. They were, they were indeed running on the same ticket. I'd also inaccurately suggest that after the tie-breaking vote made him president, Jefferson used his power as president to make it so that Burr would not be his vice president. Uh, this is, again, completely untrue, as Burr did serve his entire term four years as vice president. Uh, now, the, the story of Burr after this is, is a sad and, 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 and really depressing one uh, because not only did he, does he end up losing all political power because he ends up running for governor of New York uh, after he leaves the vice presidency and actually absolutely gets blown out um, 
to to really someone with no name at all. Um, but you know, of course, he ends up shooting and killing a former friend and colleague, Alexander Hamilton. So, next segment, what I'm going to talk about is the the main part that um, that of course elects presidents, and that is the electoral vote. And then we'll follow that with a segment, probably a short one, on the popular vote. So, as we move on to the Electoral College election of 1800, uh, one something happens uh, that is very quite interesting, um, and it actually caused a lot of tension and, and probably the main reason uh, that Burr did not run for vice president um, under Thomas Jefferson for the second election as Thomas Jefferson eventually pushed him out uh, but because it was felt that Burr was actually campaigning for the presidency instead of the vice presidency we actually at the end of voting had a tie the way this is this had been set up for the first election second and third election and even the fourth election is those two gentlemen that were campaigning with each other campaigned for the main person who was running for president to get one more vote than the person running for vice president and we see a really big reason why the 12th amendment was added in 1804 because they always managed to screw it up uh, that's how Thomas Jefferson ended up being the vice president uh, in 1796 uh, because Hamil- Hamilton and the Federalists screwed up their voting and Jefferson managed to f- finish second. But in the 1800 election, Thomas Jefferson received 73 electoral votes Aaron Burr received 73 electoral votes. Now, the number of electoral votes needed at the time was 70, so they both got the subsequent numbers um as far as john adams he ended up finishing third with 65 electoral votes charleston uh charles pickney who was his vice president's running mate ended up with 64. keep in mind that the federalists actually got their act together right this time and voted charles pickney one less than john adams and then john jay who also was a federalist managed to pick up one electoral vote and uh we'll see those election uh, results here in a minute but what this does because there is a tie they had to go to a contingent election in the house of representatives now under the terms laid out in the constitution the outgoing house of representatives chose between jefferson and burr uh this is when it comes out that burr was accused of campaigning for the presidency himself uh, and it took 36 ballots, 36 different ballots in the House of Representatives uh, before Jefferson eventually did win the presidency. Uh, and basically how this happened is thanks to Alexander Hamilton, who favored Jefferson over Burr. Now, up to that point, Burr and Hamilton that was kind of alluded to uh, in the musical, they were colleagues and they were sometimes friends. They weren't great friends, but it was always known 
that Hamilton had no love lost at all for Jefferson. So when he decided in 1800 to back Jefferson, you know, absolutely all hell breaks loose. And Hamilton, of course, ends up dead at the hand of Burr five years later. Uh, so this is how each state voted. Uh, as far as the Tide Electoral College in Connecticut, Adams and Pickney both ended up with nine apiece. In Delaware, Adams and Pickney ended up with three apiece. Uh, Georgia, Jefferson and Burr ended up with four apiece. Kentucky, uh, Jefferson and Burr ended up with four apiece. Maryland, here's a fun one. Uh, five went to Jefferson, five went to Burr, five went to Adams, five went to Pickney. Completely split ballot. Massachusetts, 16 went to Adams as well as Pickney. Uh, in New Hampshire, Adams and Pickney both picked up six apiece. In New Jersey, they both picked up seven apiece. New York, Jefferson and Burr picked up 12 apiece. In North Carolina, Jefferson and Burr each picked up eight apiece, with Adams and Pickney picking up four apiece. And in Pennsylvania, and, and just as an aside, this is how our elections should go now. Uh, I, yeah, if, you know, if one person has a slight lead of a 51-49%, you know, basically, that person should only get one more electoral vote than the person coming in second, and not all of them. I don't like the winner-take-all system. Um, but Pennsylvania, eight go to Jefferson and Burr apiece, seven go to Adams and Pickney apiece. In Rhode Island, this is the state that actually gave one electoral vote to Jay, but Adams received four and Pickney received three. And this is probably why Jay got one, is to make sure that Pickney ended up with one less than Adams. In South Carolina, Jefferson and Burr picked up eight apiece. Tennessee, Jefferson and Burr picked up three apiece. And then in Vermont, Adams and Pickney picked up four apiece. And Virginia picked up, or Jefferson and Burr picked up 21 each in Virginia. Totaling again, 73, 73, 65, 64, and 1. So we move on to the contingent election that took place in 1801. What time? Good. Again, in the 1st through 35th ballots, which occurred on February, between February 11th and the 17th, uh, it, it ended, the vote ended up amazingly all 35 times the same way, with Thomas Jefferson receiving 8 votes, which was about 50%, Aaron Burr receiving 6 votes, 37.5%, and then 2 divided votes, 12.5%, uh, giving Jefferson or... Um, in order to win, uh, Jefferson would have needed to pick up nine. He hit eight in those 35 times. And then, uh, again, in that 36th ballot, after Hamilton announced his support for Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson receives 10, which put him over the top, with Aaron Burr receiving only four. And then there were two blanks left for that's 16 states, 16 votes. And I just want to see where the change actually took place. 
once they'd changed. And it will, hmm. Interesting. It was Maryland who gave their support. Uh, Maryland and Virginia who gave their support uh, to Jefferson. Where Burr lost Delaware and South Carolina, soon enough, who had voted for Burr, uh, for Burr in the first 35 ballots, did not vote on the subsequent 36 ballot that gave Jefferson the win. Uh, so, as I do with every election, we go over the method of choosing electors. In Kentucky, Maryland, and North Carolina, the state is divided into electoral districts with one elector chosen per district by the voters of that district. In Rhode Island and Virginia, each elector is chosen by the voters statewide. In Tennessee, they had three systems available. The state is divided into electoral districts with one elector chosen per district. Each county chooses an electoral delegate by popular vote and each uh, elector is chosen by elector delegates of the counties within their district. And then in all the rest of the states, uh, the other 10 states, each elector is appointed by the state legislature. Um, So before I move on and talk about the popular vote, which we don't have very many states on it, uh, at this time... You know, the United States is really starting to form up. We have the Northwest Territories. Um, we have the Indiana Territory. And then we have what would become the Mississippi Territory. Uh, and then eventually Mississippi and Alabama. So, Jefferson wins the election um, with the, the Electoral College. Outs, uh, uh, John Adams becomes the first president in the United States history to lose a presidential election. Take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about the popular vote. All right, forecasters, if you haven't heard about Anchor, and by now you should have, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain a few details. First of all, it's free. It's never going to cost you anything to make a podcast on Anchor FM. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money straight from your podcast with no minimum uh, listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now, if you're interested in making your own podcast like I've been doing and like some of my friends and family have been doing, you need to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. So now we're going to talk about the popular vote and there really is not much to talk about. Uh, We still don't have a lot of numbers. Uh, You know, a lot of states at this point uh, were doing uh, popular elections. But not all states were. But I can say that for the 1800 presidential election, the turnout was 32.3%, which is above 1796 election by 12.2 percentage points. Uh, So 
you know, more people are getting into the voting spirit. Uh, and so basically what I'm going to do for this segment is just briefly talk about the popular vote and then go more in depth into the 12th Amendment that changes the Electoral College process. All right. And and see, here here's the other issue with the, the, the voting process at this time. Uh, the election, the voting actually started in April and they could vote until October. And then the Electoral College election would be held in November. Um, but it looks like out of the 16 states, I believe. Yeah, out of the 16 states, we only have numbers for four. Uh, Kentucky held an election, but we don't have any of their numbers. Tennessee also held an election. We don't have any of their numbers. So we can only look at Maryland, North Carolina, Rhode Island, and Virginia. Three of these, one by Jefferson, one by Adams. In Maryland, and it was actually close. Uh, Thomas Jefferson received 10,637 of the votes, while John Adams received 10,068. He won by 569 votes, or 2.74%. In North Carolina, uh, it was also a relatively close election. Uh, Jefferson received 11,916 votes to John Adams, 10,702 votes, uh, with a margin for Jefferson of 1,214 votes, uh, and percentage-wise, he won by 5.36%. And Rhode Island, uh, the one state that we have reporting, um, voted for Adams. Uh, He received 2,353 votes to Jefferson's 2,159 votes. This was a margin of difference for Adams of 194 points, uh, or in percentage points, about 4.3. Virginia was a total washout uh, for Adams. Jefferson won the state, winning 21,002 votes to John Adams, 6,175 votes, a difference of 14,827 votes, or when we look at the percentages, 54.56%. Yeah, and that's it for the popular vote. So, what I actually want to do now is, in this transition, go ahead and talk about the 12th Amendment, which would be in place by the time the next election was held. So, basically, the 12th Amendment uh, provides the procedure for electing the president and vice president. It replaced the procedure provided in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3, uh, in which the Electoral College originally functioned. Uh, Again, it was ratified on June 15, 1804. So here's the text. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves, they shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president. Basically, what this is changing is that when they do vote, they have to name who they are voting for president and who they are voting for vice president. 
Uh, the President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all the certificates and votes shall then be counted. We just saw this happen last week uh, when Vice President Mike Pence, who is the President of the Senate, the President of the Senate is always the Vice President, uh, opened the ballots and then a riot happened and insurrection happened and all that fun stuff. But they did eventually open the ballots, count them, and certified uh, that Biden had won. Uh, the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if no person have such majority, then from the persons having the highest numbers, not exceeding three on the list of those voted as for as president. As a representative shall choose immediately by ballot the president. But in choosing a president, the vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote, a quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all states shall be necessary to do a choice. And if the House of Representatives shall not choose a president whenever the right of choice shall devolve upon them before the fourth day of March next following, then the vice president shall act as president as in the case of death or other constituted disability to present. That last piece has changed because they've changed when... Uh, the inaugural actually is. It's now in January. Basically what that section is talking about is whoever wins the majority of the electors, whatever it's set at, which is one more than half, becomes the president-elect, becomes the president. If no one does, it goes to the House of Representatives where each state votes. They get one vote. The person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be the vice president, if number be a majority of the whole number of electors opponent, it's the same thing as the president. But it completely changes it to now where they're having to identify who they're voting for as president, who they're voting for as vice president. It becomes a little bit easier to select the person. Here, and, and here, here's a fun little fact. Uh, the first state to ratify was North Carolina on December 22nd, 1803. Uh, New Hampshire voted in June 15th, 1804, and that is, at the time, 3-4 of the states, 13 of 17. That is when it was ratified. Tennessee then ratified it on July 27th, 1804. Massachusetts they were very late to the game on this one. They ratified it in 1961. Um, let's see. If there's any... Let's see. Starting with the election of 1804, each presidential election has been conducted under the 12th Amendment. Only once since then has the House of Representatives chosen a president in a contingent election. This occurred in 1824, as none of the four candidates won an absolute majority, which was 131 at the, at the time, uh, and, and Andrew Jackson ended up winning with 99 electoral votes uh, in that before the subsequent election, or the contingent election. So here, here it is that up to, yeah, after four elections, uh, where it was just a, a fumbled mess, and the House did have to decide who would be president once they pushed in the 12th Amendment in 1804. It only happened one more time after that. All right, 
So that is it for the fourth quadrennial election. We're going to move on to the fifth, which is the re-election of Thomas Jefferson. So now we are moving on to the 1804 presidential election, which is the fifth quadrennial presidential election. Uh, this featured Thomas Jefferson going up against Charles C. Pickney, who has ran in every single election up to this point. He would run again in 1808 and lose again. This would actually uh, be the second straight uh, loss in the presidential election uh, for the Federalist Party, and they would never win again. They actually only won as a party uh, in eighteen or seventeen ninety six. They would never win the presidency again after that. In fact, by eighteen twenty, they would not even field a presidential candidate. Uh, it was actually, you know, I'm going to have to check it as I go through, but it may be the only time that we have an election where someone is running essentially unopposed. So, um, this election was held between Friday, November 2nd and uh, Wednesday, December 5th of 1804. At this point, there were 176 members of the Electoral College, so you needed 89 to win. Uh, the turnout, as far as the popular vote, was down 8.5%, 8, down to 238 uh, and again, this is the first election where when they're deciding who is president and who is vice president on the ballot, they have to actually name who they're choosing as president, who they're choosing as vice president. Uh, so Thomas Jefferson obviously runs again as president uh, for re-election, uh, but Aaron Burr is not running with him. Jefferson pushed him out of the ticket. And there was actually a a process basically kind of a nominating process to decide excuse me who would be his vice presidential running mate uh, George Clinton would eventually come out on top and be his vice presidential running mate who was the governor of New York between 1777 and 1795 and then again between 1801 and 1804 also vying to be his vice presidential nominee was John Breckinridge of Kentucky, uh, U.S. Senator. Um, Gideon Granger, who was the Postmaster General from Connecticut. John Langdon, a former U.S. Senator from New Hampshire. Levi Lincoln, a U.S. Attorney General from Massachusetts. And William Maclay, a former U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. On the Federalist... Uh, side again Charles Pickney is the candidate for president and his running mate is Rufus King who is a former US minister to Great Britain from 1796 to 1803 but you know what this was not even really a contest um, Thomas Jefferson would win easily uh, garnering 162 electoral votes to Charles Pickney's 14. He carried 15 states to Pickney's 2. Um, 
So, uh, uh, let's get down to the election. And we actually have more states that that uh, voted by popularity. I mean, there were so... It, because there were really only two men running for president. It was between Thomas Jefferson and Pickney. Um, Thomas Jefferson received 162 electoral votes for president. George Clinton received 162 vote, electoral votes for vice president. And this is interesting. They don't have a full breakdown like they have in the past. I'm at a little bit of a loss. So, hmm. But I guess that that's how it gets solidified is I'll just read it off the map um, Massachusetts uh, gave all 19 of its electoral votes to Jefferson New Hampshire all 7 to Jefferson uh, Vermont 6 to Jefferson New York 19 to Jefferson Rhode Island 4 for Jefferson Connecticut 9 for Pickney that's one of the two states he won uh, New Jersey, 8 to Jefferson. Pennsylvania, 20 to Jefferson. Ohio, new state, 3 to Jefferson. Kentucky, 8 to Jefferson. Virginia, 24 to Jefferson. Okay. Uh, Maryland, 9 to Jefferson, 2 uh, to Pickney. Delaware, 3 to Pickney. The only other state he won. Uh, North Carolina, 14 to Jefferson. Tennessee, 5 to Jefferson. South Carolina with 10 to Jefferson. And Georgia with 6 to Jefferson. So let's talk real quick about how they chose their electors. Uh, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, New York, South Carolina, and Vermont all chose their electors uh, by state legislature. New Hampshire, New uh New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Virginia uh, chose their electors uh, by having the voters uh, select. Uh, Kentucky, Maryland, North Carolina, and Tennessee, uh, their states were divided into electoral districts with one elector chosen per district by the voters of that district, which is how it should be done to this day. And then in Massachusetts, they go back to their complicated ways of, ele of electing their electors Two electors were chosen by voters statewide, usually lined up with the Senate, and then one elector was chosen per congressional district in a statewide vote. So basically, for Massachusetts, two were uh, chosen by the legislature. Was that right? No, two were chosen by the voters statewide, and the other seventeen uh, were chosen. Also statewide, but by congressional district. So, like I thought this segment would be a little bit, it's not all that short. Uh, but that's it for the Electoral College. Uh, after the next break, we'll talk about 
the popularity vote. Uh, and then I just have one more segment for the evening, which is my take. Alright, so now we're going to uh, briefly go over, and this is where we actually get to spend a little bit more time on the popular vote. And as we start adding more states, uh, we'll actually spend more and more time on the popular vote than we do on the Electoral College, even though the Electoral College is who uh, decides the president. So, with this election, um, let's see. There's 17 states. I believe that's right. Yeah, 17 states. Uh, and we actually have vote totals of 11. So 11 out of 17 isn't bad. And we actually finally have results from Kentucky and Tennessee. Sort of. <laughs> um, we even have ballots from Ohio who just became a state. So I'm going to run down these real quick. Uh, and just to note, all these states that I'm about to go through were all run by Jefferson. So in Kentucky, there were 5,080 votes cast. They were all uh, cast for Jefferson. He won with 100% of the vote. In Maryland, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson garnered 7,304 votes to Pickney's 2,295 votes, a difference of 5,009 votes or a margin of 52.18%. In Massachusetts, a little bit closer, um, Jefferson picked up 29,599 votes to Pickney's 25,644 votes, a difference of 3,955 votes, uh, or a margin of 7.16%. I'm sorry for that bump. Uh, New Hampshire, gotten a little closer. Uh, 9,088 votes for Thomas Jefferson. 8,386 votes for Charles Pickney. A difference of 702 votes or 4.02%. New Jersey, complete blowout. Uh, Thomas Jefferson received 13,119 votes to Charles Pickney's 19 votes. Uh, a difference of 13,100 or a margin of 99.72%. And while this is interesting out of North Carolina, and I think... Okay. So, I'm not going to talk about North Carolina because they're only showing results for districts 8 and 10. The other 12 appear to be lost, so there's no reason even going over those numbers. Uh, in Ohio, uh, Thomas Jefferson picked up 2,593 votes to Pickney's 364 votes, a difference of 2,229 votes or a margin of 75.38%. In Pennsylvania, uh, Thomas Jefferson picked up 22,081 votes to Pickney's 1,239 votes, a difference of 20,842 votes or a margin of 89.38%. In Rhode Island, 
Jefferson picked up all 1,312 votes. In Tennessee, uh, Jefferson picked up all 778 votes. And then in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson picked up 12,926 votes to Pickney's 75 votes, a margin of 12,851, or 98.84%. So as the popular vote goes, Jefferson won 72.8% to 27.2%. The electoral vote, he won 92% of the electors. So that's it for the 4th and 5th quadrennial. Uh, Just looking ahead, our next episode will cover the 6th and 7th. The 6th will be Charles Pickney's last election that he runs, or at least as the presidential nominee. Let's see if it's... I'm assuming it's probably because he passed away. No, he passed away in 1825. So, it looks like he just retired uh, in 1812. Let me just make sure. Yeah, because he did not run on the federal ticket. Okay. So, uh, that is it, again, for the 4th and 5th quadrennial elections. Uh... After I take a quick break, I'm going to come back with my take on this past week. Hello, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks, still looking for supporters out there anywhere in the internet universe. And did you know that you could be a supporter of this podcast for as little as 99 cents a month? Or if you want to be a little generous... You can go to $4.99 a month, or if you want to be very generous, you can go up to $9.99 a month. All you need to do is go to anchor.fm forward slash prez forecast. That is P-R-E-Z forecast. Select the amount that you want to send me each month to help me with this podcast and make it even better each time I come out. Go to that website. You can also leave me a message. It is an audio message. If you say something funny, I may even put it on the air. That is anchor.fm forward slash press forecast. So your support today. All right. So now it is time for my take. It's been over a week since the insurrection attempt at the Capitol of the United States. Uh, there have been hundreds of rests to this point. And a lot of the, a lot of these insurrectionists are whining about being treated as terrorists or traitors to their country when that's exactly what they are. They had ill intent, ill intent when they stormed that capital. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there were some bystanders who came out to protest uh, but never had any real thought to doing what happened. But when you're caught in the crowd, you're going to go with the crowd. They, 
And this is all propagated on the big lie. That the election was stolen. That it was full of fraud. And, you know, I, I heard something interesting this week. That, especially for those that, caught, that were caught up in the moment. That probably didn't go with any attention to storm the Capitol. But still went into the Capitol illegally. That because of the algorithms specifically on Facebook the the way they have it set up they basically have it set up for people who are weak minded uh, or don't research their own facts to basically go into a uh, rabbit hole of conspiracy and racism you read one article the next thing you know there's another article for you to read and then there's a video for you to watch and you just keep going and keep going and keep going and the next thing you know you are 100% convinced that the Democratic Party is nothing uh, but uh, cannibalistic pedophiles and you see them as complete evil and they need to be completely removed from life none of that's true those who have a sane mind those who think for themselves know that that's not true but they've allowed themselves to be caught up in this and this is what I've always said about people who believe in conspiracy theories you believe what you want to believe if it makes you feel better. In other words, if you don't like the answer you're seeing in front of you, even if that answer is fact, you will find something to disprove that in your mind. And frankly, that's going to take a lot of deprogramming to bring these people back. And I'm not sure that we are able to do that. One, we've got to educate our people. Donald Trump was not lying when he said he lied, he loves the uneducated because he knows that he can lie to them with every breath that he takes and they will accept it no matter what. But what I want to focus on are those senators and representatives who watch the Capitol be taken over who know that if the Secret Service had not moved tents as quick as they did if they were a little slow in their response there's a good chance that Pence would have been killed Nancy Pelosi would have been killed Chuck Schumer would have been killed any Republican that they saw as standing in the way of Donald Trump becoming or continuing to be president would have been killed. I have no doubt in my mind. And for these senators and representatives to go through that and then go back to the floor and continue the big lie and still vote To basically overthrow the election. 
Now, Senator Langford, uh, who is the junior uh, senator of my state of Oklahoma, uh, apologized to a group of North Tolson um, uh, uh, black people because he claims that he didn't know that the tenor of trying to overthrow the votes in these particular states was actually trying to overthrow the black vote in these states. Now, I'm not sure what to tell the senator. I don't know if he's been living with his head under the sand for the last four years. And, and, I, and I'm not I'm not speaking for the black population at all. I'm speaking for myself, but I don't buy his, his apology. I don't accept it either. He knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Fortunately, it took an insurrection to cause him to not go ahead and vote. But we have a serious issue in this country. And it's not as simple as Trump leaving office. Now, I, I still fully believe um, that Trump's power is gone. And we kind of saw that in the election in Georgia where both Democrats pretty handily beat the Republican senators because Trump was not on the ticket. So now the fight becomes who takes up the mantle for Trump? Who runs for president in 2024 to try to regarner, recapture that Trump base? And I don't think there is anyone that can outside of Trump. I don't think there's anyone in the Republic. You know, I know Ted Cruz is going to try, but I don't think the, the Trump uh, cult likes him at all. No one really likes him. I don't know how he got reelected. There's Holly from Missouri. Um, I think he stands the best chance. But I, I just don't see anyone capturing his base the way he caught, captured the base. And I think it spells a lot of trouble for the Republican Party going forward. Now, we'll see in 2022 and again in 2024. I could be completely wrong. I have pronounced the Republican National Party dead before uh, in 2012. But maybe they've been going through the death throes of their downward spiral. Uh, it, it's completely possible that we may be entering, I believe, the seventh yeah, I, I think it's completely possible that we're entering into the seventh party system in the United States that could see a complete uh, break of the Republican Party. I don't know what uh, but the moderates no longer have control of the Republican Party. They don't. Um, I don't know if they switch and become Democrats. Some have. Um, but I think it's more likely that we'll probably see two parties come out. And, you know, we we could be looking at what we saw with the first or the second um the one to make sure I have 
Please ride. Let's look it up. Oh, here we are. Yeah, the 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 first party system. That's the second. The first party system was the Democratic Republican Party system, especially beginning with the election of eighteen hundred. We would not see another political party actually gain uh, the White House. Until 1836. Now, during that time, we do enter the second political system, political party system, and we see the Democratic and Republican Party split. But the Democratic base of that essentially held office for 36 years. So, yeah, we'll see where we go. I'm, I'm, I still fully believe that those responsible for the insurrection last week, whether they're the ones that actually broke into the Capitol, whether they're the senators and representatives who led tours of the Capitol the day before, whether it's the President of the United States, that those responsible need to be held accountable. It is simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. So, with all that, that is my take on this week. Next week, we will have a new president of the United States. But we are still in this COVID mess. So as always, stay safe. Wear your mask out in public. Stay six feet apart as much as possible. And have a wonderful week. Good night, forecasters. All right, so I was... You know, just about to post this episode out. And I realized that I had completely forgot about the fact that the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, had been impeached for the second time. The only president in American history to actually be impeached twice. Now, no president has been convicted. Uh, One president actually resigned, and that was Nixon. Before he was impeached, he probably would have been convicted because they had the votes. But what is different about this impeachment is that 10 Republicans actually voted to impeach. Now, that may not seem like a very high number, considering 197 voted not to impeach. Uh, But the previous high for the president's party voting to impeach was when Clinton was impeached, when five Democrats voted to impeach him. Um, So... 10 Republicans deciding that he needs to be impeached and removed does kind of give the outward appearance that there is a break in the party at this point. And one of the big uh, vote, no votes, or sorry, one of the big votes to impeach came from Representative Liz Cheney, who is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. She is about as conservative as you can get. But she even saw the writing on the wall. And then nine other Republicans joined her. 
and voting to impeach. Now, of course, Mitch McConnell, who has been Trump's lapdog since he became president, and who is about to lose his power on Wednesday, uh, refused to call an emergency Senate meeting to try the president. So what does that actually mean? Does that mean that once uh, Trump's term ends on the 20th, that he cannot be convicted? No, 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 no. Yes, he can still be convicted, even if he's not in office. It's been done before, not at the presidential level, but it has been done before where someone has left office and was still convicted. He can still be convicted. So what does it mean if he's convicted after he leaves office? Well, he he loses some of the things the president, the former presidents get. But the bigger challenge, now, in order to convict him, they still need two-thirds. So, Democrats need to find 17 or possibly 18 Republicans to to vote to convict. So, let's say they do go ahead and, and convict him. The next step is... See, here's the thing. As it stands right now, if a president is convicted of an impeachment, they can still run for hours, or office. They can still run for office. Uh, Federal office. They can still run, they can run for president again. So the Senate would actually have to go through a new vote to essentially bar him from ever running for federal office again. And to do that, they only need a majority vote. And as long as some of the more moderate Democrats don't split from the party, they the Democratic Party would be able would have the votes to bar him from running again. So uh, that that's my little addendum. Uh, he should have, uh, and lest we forget, he was impeached for inciting an insurrection. And he should have been impeached. And he should be convicted. I'll stop. All right. That's my agenda for tonight. Y'all have a good uh, good week. And I'll talk to you next week.